morning and welcome to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. I'm your host, John Sumter. Today we're going to be talking with David Carendish, who is the CEO and founder of Capacity. David, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing, John? I'm great. The the Capacity, uh, you've been on before, but I'm going to guess there are a few people who don't know about Capacity. Capacity is unique, I believe, in that it is headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, we are. So, 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 so tell me a little bit about capacity and how it is that you're building a tech giant in St. Louis. Yeah, we are proudly located in uh, the middle of the Silicon Archway uh, and are happy to uh, be both creating jobs here in the Midwest and, and pulling great talent. Uh, we're located very close to Washington University in St. Louis here, and we would see each year a lot of great engineers would go off to the coast. And um, we've loved building a, a company here in St. Louis where I think we can avoid a lot of the noise that you see uh, some of the East Coast and West Coast startups and people chasing uh, chasing their tails around for the next, the next thing. Uh, we're a little more block and tackle culture here, uh, but it's, it suited us well. That's awesome. That's awesome. So what does capacity do? You could think of capacity as a new kind of help desk that's here to automate your support by taking the questions your customers or your team members have, answering them in an automated fashion, automating your workflows, and then for anything that can't be automated, which uh, can vary from company to company, but anything that can't be automated goes to a help desk where a person can jump in, uh, human in the loop, answer the question, and then store that in the knowledge base for next time. So you think of us as a support automation platform. A support automation platform. Now, I, w- I would bet that, th- that this was called a chatbot sometime in its, in its history. Um, uh, what's the change in emphasis actually mean? Yeah, it's really interesting. When we started, we had a lot of companies that were – flirting with this concept of adding a chatbot either internally for their HR team, uh, maybe externally for their customers, maybe on their intranet. And what we found is that over time, uh, the chatbot is really the tip of the iceberg. It's the inter- one of the interfaces from which to go help you do your best work. Uh, what we're finding is that our customers are, are really coming back to us and saying, David, We've got all of these processes and tasks and questions that we're dealing with over and over again. What can you do to take as much time, effort, and energy out of that process so that we have a frictionless experience with our team? And that's kind of the difference between a chatbot and a support automation platform. Bot's here to answer simple questions back and forth. A support automation platform is there to automate the experience, but also know when it can't automate and when to hand off to a person. So this sounds much, so so in the early days of chatbots, the best of breed were about something that looked like knowledge management, which is getting to the exact right answer in the piles of conflicting documentation. Uh, to do the kind of thing that you're talking about, there's a larger systems integration uh, issue. How do you how do you think about that? 
Yeah, we when we got started, uh, a lot of a lot of our initial clients thought of us as a almost like an intranet ex- extension, and we like to think of the intranet as the vestigial tail of knowledge management, still around, but it's uh, losing its usefulness in most organizations. Uh, but as we as we started getting in, we we realized that you have to break down your knowledge expectations into a, a couple of different buckets. On the one hand, you've got the sources of where your company intelligence lives. And some of that's documents, that's your FAQs. A lot of it is your apps. And originally we started building out integrations uh, with all the major players. And then we quickly realized that we didn't want to be an app integrator for the rest of our lives. And so we launched a developer platform. So now our clients and third parties can connect applications to our system. Then we added uh, the natural complement to that was that uh, we don't want to just have question and answer out. You need to be able to have a guided conversation. The guided conversation should have some level of intelligence within it because a lot of questions do not have simple answers. And one part of that intelligence is the escalation factor of uh, routing that unanswered question or difficult to answer question up to the right person at the right time. But as we started going, folks come to us and say, David, this is great. I love what you're doing, but I want to take a process like onboarding and I want, I want your help with that. And what we realized is, which maybe should have been more apparent to us sooner, but uh, we figured out soon enough is that uh, a process like onboarding is not something you can do in a single session. Onboarding a new team member might involve coordinating multiple schedules, integrating with multiple platforms, different days of dripping out additional information. The last thing you want to do is just give everybody everything all at once in one session. And so we we kind of took a step back and said, we could try to graduate our guided conversations platform, or we could throw the playbook out the window, start from scratch and say, what, what would the ideal experience look like to sit on top of a process like onboarding? And that's when we started building out our workflows platform. The way we think about workflows is that a guided conversation is a single user in a single session answering questions in a tree. There's a workflow, is, uh, it could be multiple users across multiple platforms, multiple sessions, doing things that might loop and branch and circle around and uh, be more akin to what your actual processes look like. So, so what about... Um... What about me? I guess is kind kind of the uh, the question. The the um, the fact that I go and ask a single question or participate in a single workflow is indicative of some aspects of who I am as an employee, who I am as a person. Um, have Have you started to think about building detailed relationships with individuals in the organization? Is that in your in your sweet spot, yeah. Yeah, so we've been thinking about it in terms of a couple, uh, a couple of different facets. Uh, one facet is the idea of uh, understanding the context of the user and having that inform both the answers that come out of the bot as well as the, the processes that you have. Uh, they're at the highest level. There's 
permissioning, okay, you can do this, you can't do that based on some kind of role or access. But then at a, maybe a next layer, it's like, well, who should we talk to about our benefits question? Oh, you know, Sally's raised her hand and said she, she can help with that. Uh, but then how do we vet Sally's answers? Oh, here's, here's the process for what, what that looks like. And that process might look different at company A versus company B. So I, I think at a high level, we're, we're trying to take a very nuanced approach where uh, not only do we recognize who the users are asking the questions, but on the other end of the other end of the spectrum, who are those subject matter experts? What is the mechanism for uh, getting them involved? How do you not involve them too often, uh, getting them to be frustrated with lots of tickets? But at the same time, how do you bring them in at the right time to get the user the answer when the technology has to hand over to uh, to that next layer of support. Got it, got it. So, so I hear you talking about a tool that sort of transcends silos, that you can use it for customer support or HR or technical support inside of the company. Um, how do you keep sort of the personas straight, right? Because you would have a different kind of relationship with a client than you would have with a employee, I would think. Oh, 100%. So, um, you know, we have a couple of different ways to do it. Uh, one way is you have completely separate instances, and we've seen some clients who are, uh, treat them like they're in completely different worlds. Uh, other clients that we've had uh, view it as a more of a concentric circle model. So you'll have information that's internal only, you'll have information that's external only, and they have information that's shared between the two. So I think Roughly, roughly 40% of our clients are internal only. Roughly 40% are external only, and about 20% are shared. Uh, you're actually doing shared instances where they share the information uh, between the two groups. Having a robust uh, permissioning system is important for that. And uh, the other part about that that's important that I think applies to both internal and external use cases is the recognition that not all knowledge is evergreen, and that you know most systems you know talk about pick on SharePoint for a minute. You put information in the system, it's good for a period of time, and then it becomes stale, and then nobody knows it's stale. Like we're, we're trying to avoid that problem by, by encouraging our clients to put an expiration date on their information and let the system hey nudge you and say hey. Is this still good? Okay, great. Let's, let's move on. Or no, we should we should update that document. That's that's. <clears throat> I guess the question that I want to ask you next is: Do you think of this as AI, or is this just elaborate microengineering of social processes? Uh, I think great elaborate engineering of social processes and AI become indistinguishable at some point. <laughs> Uh, so I, here, here's how I would answer that question. Um, I think that today you have a, uh, you, we have really three, three major parts of the technology that we would consider to, to have an AI or ML type component to it. The first is on the natural language processing and understand what you meant by what you said but also taking into account your context and your industry and your uh, your previous history and 
and all of that. There, there, is, there is real AI in that, in that part. Uh, the second part that's new maybe even since the last time we talked is that uh, if I go back to those sources of Intel, your apps, your docs, and your people, what, what we've spent a lot of time on is that uh, not all documents are created equal. Yet we actually think of it in terms of three types of documents. You've got your fully structured documents, your databases. They're already set up. They're already organized. Um, you query those. That's, that's not AI. Uh, NLP on top of that could be, but, the, but querying a database is an AI. The other end, you've got document search, of which we're not the first to that game. We think we have some uh, important and interesting improvements on document, basic document search, but that's for completely unstructured documents. I think where there's an interesting middle ground that people don't talk a lot about is this idea of what I would call a semi-structured document. It's a document that you see more, more than once, uh, but it follows some quasi-consistent pattern. So maybe a contract uh, might be 27 pages long, but there are 10 fields that you actually care about, 10 questions that you want to ask into that contract. Or maybe you've got uh, a job rec that might have, you know, I don't know, it might be three or four pages, but there are really a few key items you'd want to ask into that, into that job rec. And so we, we've been spending time saying, okay, how do we think about these semi-structured documents? What if we could treat those documents like they're a database? And to, to do that, there is some, some AI and ML heavy lifting. Uh, because your, your semi-structured documents, there's a reason they're called semi-structured. They're not pure databases. They're going to be, a, you know, there's, you're going to take a heuristic approach and a statistical approach to answering the questions inside of them. We, we think that they, a, a lot of company intel is buried in these, these types of documents and uh, just waiting to be unlocked from a natural language um, expectation of the user. So how do you check? You, you know, you're, you're starting to dig into layers of nuance that maybe your clients don't even know are there. Um, and, and I can't imagine that your process is to review every incremental piece of wisdom that you unearth. So how do you make sure that it's right? Yeah, uh, I think there are a couple of principles that we like to go apply. Uh, one principle is that we want to make sure that you have the context of the answer. So if I ask a question, uh, can I deduct uh, mileage to and from work? And if the answer to that was yes, and the answer to that was no, either way, if, it, if there's no context around that answer, I don't actually know if the bot was answering yes to the question I asked or to some other question that it, it, it thought about. Most of the time when a bot fails, it's not because it gave you a bad answer to the right question. Most of the time in our experience, it gave you the right answer to the wrong question uh, that, that it thought you were asking. So that the contextualization of where did this answer come from, that's the first place we like to start. The second place we like to start is a robust uh, feedback system. And feedback is never perfect. You can buy a 4.9 star item on Amazon and still not have it show up. Uh, but it's, it's, kind of like, it's kind of like democracy, right? It's, 
a terrible system, but it's the best we've got sort of thing. Uh, right. So we, we've been focused on implementing these, uh, this rating and review system so that uh, we have a robust way of understanding what is working and what isn't working and how is that trending and what does that look like. Uh, but before we show you the answer or give you a big rating and review system, the first thing we like to do is get a representative sample of people from your team to go ask questions to the bot to unearth things that we as a third party might not understand. So whether that's your lingo, whether that's your uh, specific nuances of, of your company, uh, it, it's amazing how quickly those things come out uh, when you just have a few people come in and ask questions to the bot over and over. Awesome. So, so that leads me to the next, the next area, which is um, unintended consequences. And um, for my money, the idea of unintended consequences often means that the, that the core engineering team wasn't um, diverse enough <clears throat> or informed enough to um, see some of the nuances that are in the system. And so, so I guess the question is largely, how do you think about unintended consequences with your system, and what do you do to reduce the likelihood that they're there? Great question. Uh, I'm going to use a recent example of this. So we just started powering uh, both internal questions at a large technology company as well as their external, uh, their external conference. And so uh, we looked at it, and we looked at the data, and I think we were answering something on the order of, I think it was like over 1,200 questions a week uh, regarding this, this conference. And so when we dug into the data, uh, the data said we were at about a 75% match rate, meaning for every 100 questions asked, we could answer 75 of them, which is, is actually low for us. Our average across the board today is about 84%. And we were like, well, you know, that we're getting thousands of questions a week. Why, why is this happening? Well, when we dug into the data and actually looked at what was, what, what was not being answered by the bot, uh, they weren't questions about the conference. They were all questions about the company. That, that the folks who were designing the conference bot, they, they thought that they, those would be out of scope and that nobody would ask those questions. And so... You know, we were able to course correct and pivot and help direct some of those questions into the rest of the uh, rest of the bot or the rest of the website experience. But it it wasn't that the technology didn't work per se. It was that the technology did a great job answering the questions that it had access to. But we, but we all should have done a better job of coming in in the beginning and saying, look, you may think people are going to this bot to ask questions about the conference, but they're going to ask all sorts of unrelated questions. Um, that we need to go, go test and see. So uh, in this case, uh, we tested with some of their internal team members who were working for the conference, and the, the bot did great. Next thing you know, you roll it out to uh, consumers who have not been given explicit instructions on what to ask or what's possible, and go figure. They ask, uh, they ask whatever they want. Hmm. So, so how, do you, how do you handle that? You know, the... the the fundamental transactional idea of building software, which, which we, we should talk about whether or not you think this is software, 
Um, the, the fundamental thing in building software is that you set a scope um, and you deliver inside of that scope. And part of what you're saying is <clears throat> when you do intelligent tool like this, there's a discovery process. And that discovery process is guaranteed to enlarge the scope because sort of by definition, you can't see everything up front. How do you handle that? Yeah, so from a discovery perspective, uh, part, of, part of what we find is that it's not just the volume of questions that people ask, starting with a representative sample of who is going to ask those questions. Said another way, in this case, uh, the team we were working with, I could have asked them to ask the bot another 2,000 questions, but the fact that they were so geared into what's going on at the conference uh, meant that they just kept asking conference questions. As soon as we brought in consumers to start asking uh, whatever, they, whatever was on their minds, it didn't take that many consumers to recognize that, hey, we've got a, a gap in the knowledge base that we've got to go fill. Now, the good news is, is the way that we implemented this, uh, those unanswered questions didn't just go into the ether. They didn't disappear. Uh, I was on a recent uh, side note here. My, uh, my kids are, were doing the school from home over the summer or over the, over the early spring, and we ordered a new iPad, and uh, the the magic keyboard or whatever didn't show up. And so I went to the UPS website. There was a bot there. I asked a question to the bot and answered my question the first time. Great. I asked my second question. Not only did it not know my answer, it didn't know that it didn't know my answer. And there was no escalation path. And so even in our case, even if we didn't know the answer, or the bot didn't know the answer for those first questions, we very quickly identified that the bot didn't know the answer, and we were able to escalate those questions up to the team to go handle, hey, how do we, how do we take care of this? And so, yeah, I think, I think you have two things. I think up front, you want to have not only a large volume of questions, but you want to have a diverse set of people asking them. And then as you go along, no matter how good you think you did your discovery process, there's always going to be, some, there's always going to be something you missed. So what you want to be able to do is make sure that uh, you have a graceful escalation experience uh, up to a human in the loop uh, because otherwise you're going to end up missing things that, that you'd be surprised that your, your team or your, your customers would ask. So, so that gets at part of the problem. That's the things that you might miss that, and designing around making sure that you've got a method for enlarging your view of the problem set so that you miss less stuff. What about what about things that you didn't imagine that you get wrong because you didn't imagine them, right? Does that make sense? It's a difference between the two cases. Uh, elaborate on that just one more time. So, so the first thing that you've talked about is areas that you missed um, um, because um, the the group of people looking at the problem had a limit to their view of the problem. The, the second question is, is integrations that delivered the wrong answer. Um, um, and so, and so, so getting the right questions, big deal, 
getting the right answer is also a big deal. And one of the places I'd imagine there are unintended consequences is when you give people the wrong answer. And an example ah, yeah. might be might be you don't understand the um, the local dialect well enough to know that Auntie Maine just kicked the bucket beans. I want to know what my uh, bereavement benefits are, um, and so and so um, you instead default that question over to the section about buckets. Um, and so yeah. there's a there's kind of unintended consequence there. Yeah, I think I think there are a couple couple ways that we handle that. Um, the first thing I would double click on this for just a second. So when you ask a question to our bot. What ends up happening is we'll pull in the context, we'll pull in the user information, we'll pull in your previous questions, et cetera, and uh, we have a what's called a candidate generator that will try to figure out potential matches to what we think you just you just asked us about. Uh, from that candidate generation, all the algorithms will go in and vote and say uh, what what was the most likely candidate, and if those votes tally up and come up with a score that's high enough, then we'll go retrieve that information from wherever it may be. If those scores are too low, then we'll go and we'll send it off to a, a person either via live chat or via ticket. But then there's a, an important middle ground, which is where a lot of those, um, a lot of those corner cases end up happening. That's where we'll come back and clarify and we'll say, did you mean A, B, or C? And if you select B, we'll actually remember that for next time so that you don't have to ask that, ask that again. And so what we'll do initially when we start is we'll set that clarifier threshold to be pretty high. So to match something, you gotta, you gotta, be, a, you gotta be a pretty strong vote uh, from, from these algorithms. And then otherwise we're gonna clarify if it's in between, if it's really, really bad, then we'll send it, send it to a person. And then we can, we can actually bring that clarifier threshold down over, over time. Uh, now, to the next point, though, of, okay, even if you, even if you have your clarifier, how do you handle uh, the bucket question going to the bucket response if it somehow tripped your threshold? Well, then you, you'll display it back to the user. You'll ask the user for that feedback, and then you can customize what you do from there. So, uh, one client of ours in their, uh, in their kind of help desk response, before it ever goes to a help desk person, we'll actually give them a whole bunch of results. Hey, what, hey, we thought it was this, but actually here's a much bigger set. Was it in here somewhere? And we try to avoid that as a first principle for where to start because uh, having to dig through all these results are the reason why I think Google internal search has failed within most companies, part mm -hmm. of the reason why. Uh, but that, that is an option. Uh, the other thing, though, is when, when that gets escalated up, we will actually ask the user for, for why, we'll actually ask for additional context for what happened. So uh, before it ever gets back to that agent, it'll say, oh, I'm looking, you know, Aunt, Aunt May just died, and that will help fill in some of the gap because we can actually uh, pull on that description to help the agent now know how to respond faster or better 
or to use that in training the uh, machine learning for next time. That's interesting. There's a whole bucket of questions that I'd love to drill down into um, from there, but but we have hit the wall on the clock. Hit the wall on the clock. Hit the clock on the wall, maybe. Um, <laughs> anyhow, <laughs> thanks for taking the time to do this, Davis. Uh, uh, David, um, is there anything you want to leave people with as we go out the door here? Well, the thing I'll leave you with is obviously we're in uh, unprecedented times and everything going on, COVID and wildfires in the West Coast and big election year, et cetera. Uh, but one thing I'll, I'll mention is that now is the time to start investing in this kind of technology. Uh, we happen to think our platform's pretty good. There are other great platforms out there as well. But now is the time in the middle of, of all the change that's going on in the world. The best time to get started on this is now um, for implementing this kind of technology within your org. That's great. So we've been talking with David Karanish, who is the CEO and founder of Capacity, a, um, an enterprise artificial intelligence SaaS company headquartered, of all places, St. Louis, Missouri. Thanks for taking the time to do this, David, and thanks, everybody, for listening in. This has been HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. We'll see you back here next week. Bye-bye now. 